was very moved and blessed by our worship this morning. So thank you, musicians and praise team. What a gift that is to us. And it's so good to see each of you. I'm glad that we have the opportunity to come into the presence of God. On this Sabbath, it is our, hello, welcome back. It is our final Sabbath in, in our series on Ezra. And when people come back after moving away, you just have to stop sometimes what you're saying and say, hey. So let us just pause for a moment in prayer as we begin. Dear God, thank you so much for what you are doing in our lives. We bring our whole selves to you even now. Our joys and our sorrows are safe in the refuge that is you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. On Saturday, May 14, a gunman, 18 years old, entered a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and shot and killed 10 people, wounding three. This picture here is from a place in the community where people have gathered to write their names and to remember. And this next picture is from this week on Tuesday, May 24 as an 18-year-old gunman entered Robb Elementary School and shot and killed 19 children and two teachers. And we pause, and I invite you to pause today to take in uh, the heartbreak and the loss and to lament. So I'm going to invite you to pause for a second for each one of the lives lost. I invite you as a community to pray for the families that were lost, that lost loved ones in the last 14 days. And so I invite you in this time to take a moment of silent lament. A second for every life. We can certainly go on with longer, but we pause and we hold the space for lament. And we find today that this is exactly what the prophet of God is found doing. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9, 
verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, and their sons have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the Lord, the God of Israel, gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and my cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced my God to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. Ezra starts off, as he hears this news, he begins in the first person. I am too ashamed to lift my head. And then he moves to quickly for our iniquities. He doesn't say they're wrong. He doesn't say their sin. He doesn't speak towards the other. He says our wrong, our iniquity, our sin. We have a problem, he says, evil, heartache, sin, and pain, and Ezra sits appalled. I'm wondering if we have the courage to sit appalled. We must admit what is wrong in order to move on. We stretch out our hands to God as if by reaching up our hands we could actually get closer, that we could actually reach up to God. Is God so far from us we cry out, what if, what if today the church of God lamented not their sin, not the sin of the other, but what if, what if we repented of our sin, of the chaos and the pain and the heartache of our shared humanity? Oh God, forgive us. The challenge in tragedy is the feeling of helplessness. Another shooting. Oh, and then another shooting. We can't do anything. But to lament, to pray, to cry out for repentance, to sit appalled, that is to do something. And that is the beginning. Because to admit that something is wrong is essential in order for us to see change. You know that one of my personal heroes is Fred Rogers. I've shared this with you before. But I really relate to the words of Emily P. Freeman that Mr. Rogers pastored me. 
really. As a kid in that home that I was in with some chaos around me and some crazy, and maybe even you didn't have a chaotic, but you had a quintessential perfect childhood, you still received the blessing. But mine just happened to be a little bit not that way. But I sat there and he spoke directly to me. And his eyes looked at me and said, it's okay to feel angry and afraid, to feel grief and to feel sadness. And he looked us in the eyes and he said, it's okay to feel all of these things. In an interview with CNN in 1999, Rogers said, I went into television because I hated it so. And I thought there's some way of using this fabulous instrument to nurture those who would watch and listen. His grief, his lament over what was happening led him to use that very thing to bring about change. Because to lament, to really pay attention to what is wrong is the foundation for any meaningful action. In Ezra chapter nine, we find Ezra goes on, he goes on to pray and to identify with the sin, to sit in the sadness and the lament. He stays in that place for a very long time. And then it says the very next day, and thank you, Hannah, for reading the first of this section we're going into now, Ezra chapter 10, while Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, notice all of that action, confessing, praying, weeping, and throwing himself down. A crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. First of all, you should feel appalled when you read that. We'll get to that in just a moment. We'll get to that. But I want you to notice some beauty before we go into the problematic elements of this passage. Ezra laments. He enters into a foley. He prays, he weeps, he confesses, he puts himself before the Lord on the ground. And what happens when one person, this leader, is willing to have courage to lament? Others gather around. Men, women, children all come. And that's the beautiful part of this passage is that everyone is joining in it together. That one person's lament leads to more lament. Then Shechaniah comes along and says, now let's do something. This is what happens when we notice what's wrong. We want to do something. Now, whether you agree with what they decided or not, which I don't, and I will explain that in just a moment, you can see their hunger for God. You can see their desire, that they noticed what was wrong and then they longed to make it right. But oftentimes we mess up when we want to make something right. In our earnestness, we can choose the wrong thing next. Notice that with all the chaos and the pain around us, it's really easy for us to 
to give up on hoping things could be different. I think that's a bit where Ezra himself was in chapter 9. But Shechaniah says, let us make a covenant. Let us do something. And I think it's really important to note the beauty of moving from one leader lamenting to all the people lamenting to let's do something about this. They chose the wrong thing, and we'll get to that in a moment, but it's beautiful to see that progression, that we must admit what's wrong in order to move on, and then lament leads to action. Sadly, the people do what humans do so often, that we think the answer is to put people away, that that will solve our sin problem. If these ones could just be put away, you are the ones that defile us. It's your kind, if I other you. Your beliefs, your way of being in the world, your politics, your action, your choice to carry weapons or not. If I other you, if I can cause you to be the problem, I'll put you away and then I will be okay. Their wives, their husbands, their sons, their daughters, families ripped apart, separated in the name of holiness. The events in Ezra 10 seem to go against the biblical view of marriage and the sacred gift of family. Remember God who said in Malachi 2 verse 16, for I hate divorce and covering one's garment with violence, so take heed to yourselves and do not be faithless. Was it really what God was calling them to do? We must make again a critical distinction between descriptive and prescriptive scripture. We talked about this in our time in the book of Judges. Prescriptive passages tell us how to live. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Telling us what abundant life looks like. Descriptive passages, on the other hand, tell us what happened. Take 2 Samuel 11 for a moment. This man of God called the man after God's own heart, David, it's the recounting in 2 Samuel 11 of how he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then covered over his adultery by murdering her husband. Go ye and do likewise? No. This is describing what we see around us and in us, right? This is describing this pain that we face. This is not prescribing to you, go do this. We have to be able to differentiate between what God commands and what God is telling us to give us hope that God can keep showing up in the midst of our humanity. Exodus 20 verse 14 is the prescriptive. Do not commit adultery. Honor this relationship, this covenant. This is what happens with sin in the garden. God designs us to be in loving harmony with one another, with God, with all of creation. And Genesis chapter 3 describes what will happen as a result of sin. Not saying God wants it or desires it. Some of us have used descriptive passages recording what the people did as prescriptive in our lives. And that's a problem. So like David's story in 2 Samuel, Ezra chapter 10 is descriptive. This is what happened in the lives of God's people. This was what they did in their earnestness for righteousness. The people and Ezra himself became convinced that they were to divorce and separate their families. Yet the Bible doesn't say we need to agree with Ezra or the people. 
Nowhere in Ezra 10 does God show up confirming the people and the prophet understood the will of God. Was Ezra right? Did God approve of this? Because God told you not to do this, does that mean God wants to separate this now? Much later, Jesus says that that God never desired for this to happen. In Mark 10, 1 to 12, he talks about this coming from a place of brokenness. And that's what we see in our experience, that the Bible relates to us a human story. People reaching out after God, stretching their hands high to God, reaching after righteousness. A story of people fumbling and failing to find the will of God. I can relate, can you? God wasn't waiting for them to fix the situation themselves, to put the people away that they had already built family with. God wanted their hearts. So often when we see the problem, we rush in and try to fix it, but God wants our hearts. Whenever we need mercy, whenever we need to turn our lives around, whenever we've messed up and failed, there's only one place to come to for complete restoration. And the scriptures tell us that that hope, that space, that place is God alone. They could have turned to the Psalms, and I invite us to for a moment. Psalm 42, verse five, is one that I find myself repeating. Psalm 42, verse five says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Then Psalm 65, verse 5 says, By by awesome deeds you answer us with deliverance, O God, our salvation. You are the hope of the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. Psalm 145, verse 5 says, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob, for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. All of our hope is found in God. And then there are two precious assurances that I want to invite you to that, to to read and to experience again. This found, here you go, in Steps to Christ, we shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. But we are not to be discouraged. Even if we are overcome by the enemy, we are not cast off, not forsaken and rejected of God. No, Christ is at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. She says here, and the psalmist says, if you recognize you're in trouble, if you recognize you have shortcomings, if you, like the people with Shechaniah and Ezra there that day, recognize, oh, I've actually veered off from the will and way of God. Cry out to God. Because our hope is not in us fixing it, but our hope is in God alone. And so then another another quote that I love on this, the message from God to me for you is this. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you have nothing else to plead before God, this this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never, never be turned away. Never. There is no shortcoming that you can have. There is no failure. There is no sin that is too far for God to reach you. Don't try to fix it yourself, but come in repentance, and then God can show us what that looks like. 
We stretch out our hands to God to find that God is ready to forgive, love, and heal us. In the New Testament, we see that Paul had a completely different picture of this than Ezra and the people did that day. Notice this, this is 1 Corinthians, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Instead of the pagan spouse ruining the godly spouse, Paul said to the godly spouse, could sanctify the inclusiveness of Jesus changed Paul's perspective. And so we find that this is a very different, different experience than Ezra chapter 10. Paul flips the script and he says, instead of this pagan spouse ruining or making you unholy, that you actually become one family that God can draw closer to God. We want clean lines. We want good guys and bad guys. Tell me who's at fault. And especially in situations like this or the ones we face today, we want to understand who is it who is to blame. The society, politicians, the police, the parents, the media, who can we blame? I wonder if our response was like Ezra's to start first with weeping, crying out, lamenting, because we recognize what the people didn't then, that the murderer is actually not far from us, that the unholiness can't be put out because it's within us, that we cannot put away and disown or other one another because we are part of one human family. We so quickly do the same thing that they did. You defile us, let's put you away. And I. I don't disagree with the reaction because I feel it within me too that someone who said this week, there needs to be a double hell for someone who does something like we've experienced the last couple weeks. I've heard that from people talking about war right now and about other things and especially when it comes to the innocent lives of children. And then people usually rush on to say it's all the fault of and we might fill in the blank differently. But pulling away from each other and pulling away from the people around us will not solve our problem. Just like it didn't solve theirs. What if our part as believers is first to lament? to start by coming to the God who can heal and restore and bring change. We cannot and must not look at the chaos and heartache of the world and believe that our actions do not matter. To foreclose on hope is not an option for a believer in Jesus. To use our despair and our frustration and our heartache to spur action must come but I believe that first begins with lament. 
praying to the God who gives us direction to then act meaningfully. So our journey throughout the book of Ezra has been from a people who were exiled and who were far off and God provided them a vision. And when God provided them the vision, God gave them the means to accomplish it. Then they got to that place and they found themselves shaking and they, instead of giving in to the fear of the people around them, they said, despite my fear, I'm going to build an altar of praise right here. And then we looked as they were having success and as they built the altar and as they laid the foundation that, of course, where there is vision, there will be opposition. And so the work stopped for 16 years and they sat. But we found again that it is never too late to start again. That whatever the vision God gave you, God again gives the means to accomplish it. Even after all those years, it's never too late to start again. And then we find the people today needing to admit what is wrong among them and in them in order to move on. That there is a righteousness, there is a holiness, there is a a peace with God and next steps that God wants to take us on, but we have to be willing to look at and say, this is wrong before we can keep moving, before we can grow. It's a really interesting, by interesting I mean somewhat troubling place, the book of Ezra ends, because that's just it. And you have to ask all sorts of questions of why were they recording all these names and why were they wanting to know who's in and who's out. And I believe this is descriptive of our human story, because for whatever reason in their community right then they wanted to know who was in and who was out and who had sinned let's get them all down by name because it's so human if you read to the the last sentence of the book you'll just see that we just recorded names all the way up to the end wow unlike I can see why I waited 20 years of ministry to preach on the book of Ezra all the way up to the end All we did was record the people in sin. Thanks. But it's the human story, isn't it? If I can other you, if I can put you out, if I can somehow believe that just closing you out caused me to be more righteous or holy. But the invitation of this scripture is to stretch out our hands to God. And as we reach out our hands to God, we see that God is reaching out hands to us. And that in fact, though we could never reach God, God was never far from any one of us. That in reaching out and in sitting appalled, that God is actually brought near. Not you, not me, but us. This sin is our sin our chaos, our heartbreak, ours to lament. So in closing, I want to share a lament that was written by Kyrie Ellison and to invite you, perhaps you even take a picture of this screen if you want to come back to your lament later, but I invite you to lament 
to enter into the pain of this. Lord, in our shock and confusion, we come before you. In our grief and despair, in the midst of hate, in our sense of helplessness, in the face of violence, we lean on you. For the families of those who have been killed, we pray. For the shooters, help us to pray, Lord. For the communities that have lost members, their anger, grief, fear, we pray. For the churches striving to be your light in darkness beyond their comprehension, we pray. In the face of hatred, may we claim love, Lord. May we love those far off and those near. May we love those who are strangers and those who are friends. May we love those who agree with and understand, and even more so, Lord, those who we consider to be our enemies. Lord, have mercy. Heal our sin-sick souls. May these wounds be made whole, Lord. And that is what I invite you as the people of God to pray today. Oh God, would you make us whole? Amen.